0: 49, and in fact, I would say, in light of that statement, this psalm is very apropos, okay? So, Psalm 49. We are in our series called Psalms for the Summer. And we will go through probably Labor Day. And then we'll go back to our Gospel of Matthew series, okay? Psalm 49. And when you get there... You'll notice that there is a superscription that says to the chief musician. These are instructions. Uh, He is supposed to take these lyrics and uh, put music to them. It's a song of the sons of Korah. Uh, They are the ones that have composed this. Maybe they're the ones that are going to sing it. We really don't know. Okay, I'm getting a little bit of feedback, Tommy. Just a little bit. Now we don't know the historical context of Psalm 49 but we do know the circumstances that precipitate the writing of the psalm. In other words, there's a problem that it's addressing that uh, becomes obvious when you read the psalm. And the problem is that Israel, at this point, is going through an economic crisis very much like America is going through today. And the problem is that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And uh, if you uh, would like to see what an ancient situation looks like that's equivalent to our modern situation, uh, this psalm addresses it. And what we're gonna see in the psalm is there are two classes of people. There are the rich and there are the poor. And the rich are benefiting from the low wages of the poor. In other words, they're taking advantage of the poor. What you have, I've learned this. I mean, I hate to tell you that I do the things like this. But when I have someone over a barrel, guess what I do? I take advantage of that. Now, that's a worldly philosophy. That is a terrible thing to do. But I know that I've done that. When I have someone over a barrel, that's when I ask for a raise, for example. Right? If they need me, then you say, well, what's in, what's, what's in what I'm going to get out of this thing? So what happens here is the rich people have the poor people over the barrel. And as a result, uh, the poor people are being oppressed. Now if you would think of the Occupy movement right now where you see those signs that says we are the 99%. And uh, whether you agree with that whole thing or not, not, that's not the point. The point is that these are, the 99% are people who are basically labor, and the 1% are the CEOs of the multi-million dollar corporations that are they're making money. And uh, these people feel like they're oppressed. And that's what you have here. These people really were oppressed. Uh, the people you're going to read about were victimized and they are very vulnerable. And as a result, they're afraid. They're afraid of what the future holds for them. Okay. Now, what makes this very interesting to me is that Israel was never to function that way. In other words, Israel was not to have an economic system where there was an upper class and there was a lower class. When God created Israel, he gave strict laws about land. And everybody got land. Equal amounts of land. And if somehow you were able to finagle someone else's land for yourself, there was a point where you had to give it back. That's how it was in the nation of Israel. They had laws regarding the land, regarding debt, taking care of widows, taking care of orphans, dealing with people on the margins. No one was left behind. But that's not how they're living. Uh, all the wealth now is uh, settled within the hands of a few people. So, what we're going to see is the psalmist asks, and he answers one major question. Look at verse 5. Okay, Here's the question. Why should I fear in the days of evil? you see that? He sees that the, the evil oppressors are uh, getting the upper hand, and he asks this question. Why should I fear in the days of evil? Okay. And then look over at verse 16. Here's the answer. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid uh, when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house, is increased. Okay, so we have this question and we have this answer. He's saying that the poor people who are being oppressed shouldn't be afraid of this situation. Okay? In fact, he says, the people that really should be afraid are the rich unbelievers. Not the poor believers. They should not be afraid. The real people that should be afraid are the rich unbelievers. Okay? And then he speaks in this psalm about the limitations of wealth. You know, it's great as long as you have it. But what happens when you die? (laughs) In other words, wealth has its limitations. As long as you have it, that's great. But then what? Now look at verse 12. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. That's right. He's going to lose it all, isn't he? He is like a beast that perishes. Look down at verse 20. A man who is in honor, yet does not understand, is like the beast that perishes. So here we see that your money is okay, but guess what? When you're dead, it perishes with you. And when we read through Psalm 49, we're going to see that it sounds a lot like wisdom literature. Uh, Like the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember how the, Ecclesi- the book of Ecclesiastes is all about? Vanity of vanity, all of it vanities. Guess what? You're born, you live, and then what do you do? You die and that's the end of it. Okay, so uh, this is sort of like uh, a piece of wisdom literature, only it's different than the Ecclesiastes because it offers hope. To the poor people who are oppressed, there's something beyond death that that's going to talk about that. So let me give you the outline of the book, and then we'll go down the verses. And I think this book will uh, just speak to you, especially in light of some of the things that have happened in America this week and what are going on in America for these past years. Okay, so the outline is going to be verses one through four. We have a preface there, verses one through four. That's where the author tells us what he intends to do. Okay, then. second section, verses 5 through 13, he states the problem. And the problem is about fearing your situation because the rich people are oppressing you. He states the problem. He opens with the question of fear. That's verses 5 through 13. And then the remaining verses, verses 14 through 20, he gives us the solution or the answer. He says, no matter what the circumstances are, you shouldn't be afraid. Okay? So let's look at the Let's look at the preface. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Here's what he says Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the earth, both low and high, rich and poor together. So notice what he's doing. He's calling, uh, trying to get the people's attention. And he's trying to get all the people's attention. Okay? And he. Notice how he says, all the peoples, all the inhabitants, both low and high, uh, both rich and poor together. See? Uh, this psalm is for everybody because it has a common concern uh, for everybody. Okay? There's a common concern that it deals with. Now, these are parallelisms. All peoples in verse 1 and all inhabitants in verse 2, mean in the second part of verse 1, mean the same thing. Low and high and then rich and poor mean the same thing. That means line one and line two mean exactly the same thing. That's a Hebrew parallelism. Now look at verse three. My mouth shall speak wisdom. He's telling us what he intends to do. <coughs> Excuse me. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall give understanding. Again, we have a parallelism. Wisdom and understanding basically mean the same thing. Okay. Uh, This is what he intends to do. He intends to give you wisdom. It's going to be based on the meditation of his heart. This is something that he has thought about. He sees a problem facing his nation. And he has thought on this. He's going to offer with his mouth wisdom. And it's based on the fact that he has meditated on this issue in his heart. And now he's going to give you understanding regarding this problem. Okay? First of all, verse 4. He says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. There is a proverbial statement that he has heard over and over again. Over and over again. And he says, I've listened to this folk wisdom. This common proverbial saying. And he second of all, he says, I will, in verse 4, I will disclose my dark saying on the heart. I'm going to give you uh, the truth of this situation. It lies below the surface. He calls it a dark saying. The answer to this saying, you hear this common saying, and he says it's really probably misconceived. He says, as I thought through this, he said, I'm going to give you the solution to this problem uh, that's hidden below the surface. And he says he's going to do it on his heart. Do you see that? Uh, maybe he's going to sing the solution. Maybe it's going to be a folk song. Remember how we had folk songs back in the 70s? And they were giving you, telling you the problems in the folk song and offering you the solutions. Or maybe he is... Uh, he has meditated on this saying and the problem as he's been playing his part. Maybe that's relaxed him. It's gotten him uh, into a mood to think about it so he can hear uh, the solution. Whatever the situation is, he says he's going to unravel this puzzle or this riddle for us. Okay, So what's the problem? Let's find out what it is. Look at verse 5. He says, why should I fear? And this is the problem. In the day's of evil when things go bad <clears throat> like they did in a rural Colorado like they have done uh, on Wall Street and on Main Street when things go bad he asked a question what is it why should i fear you? now Without going through the rest of the psalm, if I ask you the question, like the psalmist, when things go wrong in the days of evil, why should you fear? What would your answer be if you are a believer? You shouldn't. So the answer, sort of the question, produces the answer. You're thinking clearly. You shouldn't really fear. Now look how he describes the days of evil. Very interesting. When the iniquity at my heels surround me. When the iniquity at my heels surround me. Now that would cause a person of Israel to think back to Genesis, wouldn't it? Genesis 3.15 Remember when God curses the serpent? And he says there will be enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. You your seed will bruise his heel. He will bruise your head. So, if you were a Jew and you were realizing that there is evil nipping at your heels, you would take that back to Genesis and say, Oh, this the devil's behind this. But I don't have to worry. In the long run, getting bit on the heel is just temporary. Getting knocked in your head is permanent. A mortal head wound. The enemy in the long run will lose. And we in the long run will win. Although we're going through a lot of problems right now. Or. The iniquity surrounds my heel. Might cause you if you were a Jew. To think of the birth of Esau and Jacob. Esau comes out first. And his brother Jacob comes out hanging onto his what heel. His name is the supplanter, Jacob the supplanter. The supplanter is someone who schemes and tries to get what belongs to somebody else. Esau has the birth right. Jacob wants him, grabs right onto his heel. So it might be something like that. But whatever it is. The situation, there's evil going on, Satan has these angels who are nipping at the people's heel, they are oppressed, and it looks like evil is winning. Does that make sense to you? So, these are the people of faith, and he says, why should you fear when Satan's agents are nipping at your heel? And I think the answers imply, well, you really shouldn't. If you think clearly, yeah, yeah, if you don't think clearly, and everything's caving in on you, you say, what's going to happen tomorrow? You see? But how about if you had a heart? You can get off in the mountains by yourself a little bit and think about the situation. You say, yeah, I really shouldn't be thinking. When you think clearly and you look below the surface and you find out what solution is below the surface, you'd probably come up with the same answer as the sums. Now, what he does is he identifies the enemies in verse 6, okay? Identifies the enemies. Those who trust in their wealth. That's who the enemies are that are nipping at the heels. Uh, Notice, it's not those who have wealth, it's those who do what? Trust in their wealth. You see that? Those that are putting faith in their money that that's going to be the solution to all their problems and the, the, the bring about blessings in their lives. And that doesn't necessarily happen. Look what else he, how else he identifies the enemies in verse 6: as those who boast in the multitude of their riches. Right, not only do they trust in the riches, they brag about it. They let you know: who do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to? You know who I am? See, they flaunt their riches. They're proud that they're rich. As if they are self-made men. And then look what he says in verse 7. None of them, even though they're wealthy and they boast about their riches, none of them can by any means... Redeem his brother. Nor give to God a ransom for him. Uh, he's talking about his brother who's on his deathbed. You got a brother who's on his deathbed. and You'll see that that's what this is talking about. And uh, the doctors have given up all hope. They said, we've done everything. There's nothing left to do. We've done it. There's nothing. We can't even. That's it. I'll give you a million bucks to save my brother. Well, guess what? Your million dollars isn't worth what? Not worth a plug nickel. You're no better off than the poor person. You can have 10 billion dollars and say, "Save my brother," and Dr. can't do anything. You can't with your how about your money it says you can't even you can't buy him from God. And that's something like that. You can't even give a ransom. You can't can't bribe God. Lord, I'll give you all my money if you spare my brother. You can't do that. That's what it's describing. So you notice how your money is very limited. That's very important that you get that. So what good is your money in the face of death? It's uh, not good. Not worth much. You get a king's ransom, and it's not worth much in the face of death. Uh, it's great when you're alive. If you use it in the right way, you can do a lot of good with it. But it's very limited. In fact, I would say it's useless in the face of death. The rich and the same, the poor people are in the same boat when it comes to death. Now look what he says. For the redemption of their souls is costly. <clears throat> Notice that in verse 8. Uh, don't look at souls as, souls type thing. That just means their lives. Uh, a person's life is very precious. That's why you would be willing to give all your money to save a person's life or your life. A brother's life, a sister's life. Uh, but it shall cease forever. That person's life will cease forever. And uh, no matter how much money you have, it will do you no good. Okay? You need to use your money when you are alive. Uh, does your Bible have dashes anywhere in those passages? Some Bibles will do, and it would read like something like this. Verse 7. None of them can by any means purchase his brother, and then it would end in verse 9, that he should continue to live forever and not see the pit. In other words, you couldn't buy your brother's life back that he would live forever. No, the end result is that he goes down to the grave just like everybody else does. It doesn't matter how much money you have. So that's what, how this passage reads. You're trying to uh, get your brother to live longer, here it says eternally, and not see the pit, but your money does you no good. There are people out there who actually are trying to live forever physically. Do you know that? I don't know if you saw the interview uh, a week ago with uh, Ray Kurzweil. Uh, he's an inventor, he's a genius, an intellectual. He actually believes that we are going to be able to live forever in our physical bodies. He's working on a project called the Singularity Project, where you take an artificial intelligence, computers, and somehow merge those computers with your brain. And in time, your body will become programmed, your brain will become programmed to heal your body, repair your body, no matter what the problem is. He thinks that this is going to happen within 50 years. Now, this isn't a kook. Uh, Some of you even know this thing. This man is a graduate of MIT, has won the biggest awards known to humankind. He's an Einstein type character. He thinks that he can live forever and he's devoting all of his time and all of his energy to this. I get a magazine called Life Extension. It's a very good magazine. It has a lot of great health tips. Talks about... But their goal is to extend your life indefinitely. That is the goal. They're hooked up with this guy in some way. But the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to what? Die. We'll never be able to not die. You could have the intellect of a he graduated at the highest level of his class at MIT. You could have his intellect and you could have the millions that Ross Perot has, and you can't buy eternal life. You can't produce life. You can't cause someone not to die, no matter how rich you are. So, look what verse 10 says. For he sees wise men die. Do wise men die? That's what it looks like. The rich man, notice he sees, that's the rich man. He sees wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perishes. Notice that there is no exception. There is no exception. They leave their wealth to others. The rich man, when he dies, guess what he does? Leaves his wealth to others. The wise man dies. The foolish person dies. The Einstein dies. The imbecile dies. The rich man dies, the man who lives in a palace. And the poor man dies, the man who lives on a park bench. They're both in the same boat when it comes to death and your money or your intellect has nothing to do with it you cannot stop death you will die look at verse 11 their inner thought and this is the rich person's inner thought their inner thought is that their houses will last forever that their dwelling places for all generation deep down inside these people in this passage, and I might add some people today, deep down inside, don't think they're going to die. They don't think about that. I ask people sometimes, you ever think about death? They say, never think about death. But look what this says. They think their houses are going to live forever. Their dwelling places for all generations. And look what it says at the end of verse 11. They call their lands by their own names. They give the property a name after themselves. And they figure, it's going to last forever and so am I. They never think that they're going to die. That somebody else is going to take over the land, change the name. They put their names on buildings. Go to any university campus and you'll see names on buildings. Johnson Hall, you know, Smith Library. Go to any university on campus and ask the average student, who is Mr. Johnson? <laughs> How about Smith? They'll scratch your head, they'll have no idea. It the building's still standing, but not the people. You see? So... People think somehow that they can just live forever, and they really think that. They don't think they're going to die. Now, intellectually, they know no. They know they're going to die, but they don't think about it. Deep down, that's not what they think about. They don't think they're going to die. Now, look at verse twelve. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like. The beast that perished. He's no better than an animal. No better than the animal. And when you realize that, that you're going to be just like the animal that drops the roadkill that you see out there, and that's how you're going to do one day. Then you have some choices. See, that sobers you. When you see that, that sobers you and you have some choices. And you have to say, well, if that's the case, if I'm going to die, and who knows when, I better eat, drink, and be merry now. Get all the gusto you can, you know. He who dies with the most toys wins. You know, he who dies with the most toys loses the most toys. But that's what people think, right? So when you think through it, you say, hey, I am going to die, that's one choice. Another choice is you try to do something to better humanity. You try to leave a legacy. That's what humanists do. But you know, not all of us can leave a legacy. All of us are not like Einstein. All of us are not like Jonas Salk. We all are not college graduates. Some of us haven't invented anything. We haven't done anything. We just work. And and we we can't leave a legacy like those people. So that leads you to a third choice. You say, if this is all there is, and I've experienced it all, then why live? And you blow out your brains. And that's what some people do. But the vast majority of us just leave that, live that life of quiet desperation. We just go day after day, get up, shave, fix our hair. Get a cup of coffee, go to work, fight the traffic coming home, eat supper, watch television, go to bed, and it's just a cycle over and over and over. And that's where most people are, living this life, fighting that Elvis said, caught in the trap, can't walk out. <laughs> Remember that song? Because I look <laughs> do that for George Smith because George likes me to sing occasionally. He doesn't have very good taste in music. Now look at verse 13. Verse 13. This is the way of those who are foolish. You might be rich, but you're stupid. They think they're going to live forever and all this stuff. You're going to die just like a beast. This is the way of the foolish and of their pros, uh, posterity, who approve of their sayings. The people who buy into their folk philosophy and who say, hey, I like that, let's drink a freaking you know. They're a bunch of fools. See? And he says, say a lot, think about that. Let's take a break in the music program now. Let's really think about what's been said and sung in the lyrics of this song. Think about it, okay? Now we come to the solution to the problem. Look at verse 14. Like sheep, these are the rich people, they're laid in the grave, and death will feed on them. Why in the world would you be afraid of these people? <laughs> you know, in the end, guess what? They don't be bothering you anymore. They're going to die, and the worm's going to crawl in, and the worm's going to crawl out. You know? And you know the rest of it. I'm not singing that one for you. Okay, no. Death will feed from the earth. now watch this. Talking about the solution. The upright, that's the, un, that's the believer, who's the poor believer who's being oppressed. The upright shall have dominion over them, over the rich people, in the the morning. In the morning. What morning? I could mean the morning after their opponents die, but that's probably not it. Probably speaking of resurrection morning. The resurrection morning. So look what it says. The rich people will lay in the graves and And death will feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. We're going to say the resurrection morning. And notice the word dominion. That speaks of authority and kingdom language. When God comes and sets up His kingdom, we'll have a dominion over the world. And their beauty, that's the rich people, shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. Oh, those dwellings that they thought would be standing forever and have their names on it they're going to be in their nice suits, see their beauty shall be consumed, their nice hairstyles, their nice (laughs) facelifts, and all the other endowments, shall be consumed in the grave far from their wealth. So notice, there's a difference. The rich people die and they're consumed The poor poor believer dies, but he'll have dominion in the morning. Both die, one's consumed, the other one sees the light of day. One dies and that's the end. Death's eternal in a sense. The other dies, it's just like a good night's sleep, he wakes up in the morning. And he's talking about your body being raised from the dead. Your body being raised from the dead. So, the evil dies, and the upright dies. Who are the upright there? The upright are those people that were mentioned way back in Psalm 1. (laughs) The righteous people who live for God. that walk not according to the ungodly. The upright die, and guess what? One day, they will stand upright. They'll come out of that grave look at verse 15. But God will redeem my soul, meaning my life. Hey, wait a second. And from the power of the grave, and he shall receive me. Look at this. But God, but God, isn't that a great statement? But God. Now, what's the difference? The rich man tried to buy life, tried to redeem his brother's life, right? Couldn't do it. But guess what? God will redeem your life. What the rich man couldn't do with his money, which was live physically and stop death, God will do for you. And it says, and he will receive you. Do you see that? He will receive me. Notice he redeems my life from the power of the grave. Yes, I will go in the grave, but guess what? The grave will not have eternal power over me. He will lift me up, and he will receive me. He will take me unto himself. Now, this is very similar to what Job said. And I want to show this to you. I just want you to go back one book to Job, okay? And go back to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Evidently, there was this concept in ancient Judaism and in the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers know about resurrection. That the believer will be resurrected and God will receive him. Now when you get to Job 19, look at verse 25. Job says, notice the same language. I know that my Redeemer lives and He shall stand at last, where? On the earth. And then look at verse 26. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my what? flesh I will see God. Job knows that one day he's going to be raised and he's going to see God and God's going to receive him. Now go back to Psalms, but on your way back, stop at Psalm 17. Okay. This is the hope of the believer. Now look at Psalm 17, look at the last verse of Psalm 17. Look what the psalmist says. Psalm 17 and verse 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. Yes, because you're upright. I shall be satisfied when I what? Awake in your likeness. You see, now that's what the psalmist is talking about. Yes, we will see morning. We will be raised. He will receive us. We will be like Him. Now go back to Psalm 49. And look what it says after that verse. We're in Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will redeem my soul. And he's not only speaking for himself, he's speaking for all the believers. God will redeem my life from the power of the grave For he shall receive me. And then look at the next word. Think about that. Get a little bit below the surface and start thinking and meditating on that. And then he gives the bottom line in verse 16. Be not afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, He shall carry nothing away. The old U-Haul story. When he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. When he's in the grave, that's it. There's no glory then. He leaves everything behind. Verse 18. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. Oh, he's a self-made man. Verse 19. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. That means he's going to go to the same place they went. To the grave. They shall never, what? See light. You're going to see the morning light. You're going to see the light of morning. He'll never see the light of resurrection. A man who is in honor, yet does not understand, he doesn't understand what we're talking about, Look at the bottom line. He's like a beast that perishes. He's no different than a man. Rich, but he's just like a rich animal. And one day he'll die, and that's it. Now, regarding the tragedy in Aurora, Colorado, I doubt that anybody that walked into that movie theater that night ever had the thought in their mind they wouldn't come out before the movie was over. That they would be dead before that movie was over. They didn't think that. You think anybody walked in there and said, you know, I think I'll I'll be dead before this movie's over. No, they thought they would live, didn't they? Because that's what people think. I'm just going to live forever. I'll live, at least, until this movie's over. Wrong thought. You see... We think we're going to live forever, but we don't. Jesus tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus. Rich man lives like a king. Lazarus is just trying to get a crumb that drops from the rich man's table. Poor Lazarus. But they died. And in Hades, the rich man lives off his life. But Lazarus sees the light of day. And Jesus says, now, the rich man, when he was alive, he lived sumptuously. And Lazarus had to eat the food that the dogs ate. But now their fortunes are reversed. That is the same story that you're seeing here in Psalm 49. In the end, who's better off? The rich man or Lazarus? So why do you fear the situation that you're in? In the end, you win. And that's what he's saying. We all need to be redeemed. And you're either going to try to redeem yourself, or you're going to trust God to redeem you. The rich man says, I can redeem myself. He can't. The poor people, but God will redeem us. And we see the light of death. We all need redemption. And we know that on the cross, redemption was supplied. Now it's been supplied. So all we have to do is take it. But the rich man wants to do things his way, so therefore for him, redemption is denied. But the unbeliever says, I can't do anything for myself and for him. The redemption is applied. It's been supplied. And for you, it'll either be denied or it'll be applied. It depends on what how you think that things are through. So, Psalms is a promise of resurrection. Redemption and the resurrection of the body that has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. And because Christ was resurrected, God raised him. He will raise us up from the dead and we will be just like Jesus Christ. So that's the meaning of Psalm 49. Next week we'll deal with some of it. Father, we thank you for this passage. It deals with life and death. Especially in light of the events that are going on in our world when we think of people who are unethical, getting rich, not caring about anybody else, feel no social responsibility, and no qualms about buying their big yachts while people are starving. They don't even have a human heart. They're like animals. We think of people who are being oppressed and how fearful they are. And then we think of the situation in the movie theater and Colorado and how people there weren't thinking of death, but many of them died, and many more probably would. And Lord, this psalm applies to all of that. Help us to realize that you have everything in control in life and in death. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen.